I mean, you and Ian talk all the time about the difference between value and money. We realized that we could make more money in the short term by getting out and laboring and doing the work ourselves. But to add value to the business and to increase profitability next year and the year after that, we had no choice but to spend our time hiring, training, managing, marketing, getting customers. So that's when we really shifted and turned into entrepreneurs, in my opinion. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the pod. So many of you listeners, I know you have been around for years and say, bring back some of the old school eps, some of the old school mentality. Well, this episode may not be in the old style, but the mindset, the philosophy is one we call old school entrepreneurship. Even on our about page, we say one of the things we like to talk about on this podcast is old school like basically the opposite of what Silicon Valley talks about. Silicon Valley is like, you know, entrepreneurship is this crazy difficult struggle. You got to figure out a new idea that you're not competing with anybody and you got to do this and you got to do that. Well, a lot of times on the show, we say, you know what? If you're listening to a podcast like this, you know more about the benefits of technology, both for automation and marketing than 90% of small businesses in the world. So why do most of us then choose to go compete with each other? We choose industries where it's the 10% of the tech heads all competing against each other. Today's guest thinks that there's enormous reward to taking your knowledge and competing in less sexy industries that are established and proven moneymakers. So let's dive into it. I think you're going to enjoy this one. I certainly did. Today's guest's name is Nick Huber, and his company is called Storage Squad. Storage Squad essentially started as a storage company for college kids when they left campus. Nick started the company with his business partner, Dan, when they were in college in 2011. And as we're doing this interview, Storage Squad is doing over $3 million in sales. Crazy. Started from scratch. Recently, Dan and Nick have begun diversifying into self-storage with their own building. So there's lots of lessons and takeaways in this week's show, especially about the advantages. It's sort of something you might not think about in advance, but the advantages of running a location-dependent business remotely because it actually forces your hand to work on your business rather than in it. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's get the conversation rolling. And of course, stick around to the end of the show, where we'll do a little bit of rock news and reviews. You're a young guy. I wouldn't expect uh, a guy like you to be in the self-storage industry. I'd expect you to be, you know, running a SaaS business or something. Well, yeah. So technology is definitely something that we have embraced fully, but we've seen that it can be applied to the physical world of entrepreneurship as well. So our initial student storage business, you know, that was kind of something where, yeah, we, we learned WordPress. Yeah, we put into in place a lot of tools, 
But self-storage, we looked at that business as a mom and pop business that was ran like it was 1985. We looked at that manager that sits in the office and said, how can we take that manager remote so that we can have a better manager and we can pay them more? They can be more sales oriented. They can be more customer service oriented. And one really competent person can manage two, three, four, five facilities so we can cut that cost over our competitors where they're paying $80,000 a year to manage a big facility with, with retail hours. We can have one $60,000 a year employee manage three or four facilities really, really, really well. So you are, we are just jumping right on ahead. <laughs> Could you describe to the audience where you are in the world right now? I'm located in Athens, Georgia, mainly because of Atlanta Airport. Largest airport in the world's here. I have business in Boston. I have business in Philadelphia. I have business in Washington, D.C., several Big Ten schools. And I got my start in Ithaca, New York, which is where our, our property is and another big branch of our student storage business. So I lived in Boston for five years. That's where my partner, Dan, and I built the business. Then I had my first child when I was 28 years old in 2017. In July, we gave birth to my first son. And, and my wife and I lived in this really crappy apartment in Boston that we were paying two grand a month for. It was above an appliance store. So we're like, let's buy a house. Let's, let's find a house and buy it. So I started talking to some realtors. My wife and I went around and, and looked at some housing and, and the entrepreneur side of me was running the spreadsheets. And, and can I cash flow one of these houses? How much is it going to cost me a month? Um, what's this overhead going to be? Because I'm going to be traveling a lot anyway. And I very shortly thereafter realized that $750,000 in Boston can't get you very much. And $750,000 is going to turn my $60,000 a year budget into a $90,000 a year budget that I need to live. I just didn't want to spend that on housing. So I'm like, we're, I'm going to leave Boston. We're going to take the company remote. So I made a list of things that I love to do. The 20% of stuff that I do that brings me 80% of my joy. My wife did the same thing. And it involved a lot of outdoor activities like cycling, hiking, camping. My wife loves yoga. She loves food. I love craft beer, cycling. So we made a list of, of where can we get all those things and have a very affordable place to live. So the number one thing on our spreadsheet was where can I buy a really nice house to raise my family in 10 minutes from downtown and an hour and a half from an airport for under $300,000. And Athens was the only place in the country. I didn't look everywhere, but it's the only place with a vibrant college scene, but over a hundred thousand people. So it's not all college. All those boxes got checked and moved here in July of 2018. So a little over a year ago, it has surprised us. The Southern hospitality has been awesome. The affordability has been awesome, and and my wife loves it here, which is the most important part. So, is it weird, like when you, as a couple, say, bump into people in Athens, Georgia, and people start to dig into what you're doing? Like, yes. Well, I also have a confusing business, so I can only imagine the guys on your show who are doing this Amazon FBA trying to explain what they do. <laughs> I say, you know, I I started a pickup and delivery storage company with a partner when I was in college and they, and they say, wow, oh my gosh, that's the most amazing idea ever. Little did they understand that we were one of about 20 companies doing the exact same thing. I mean, then they're just like, what's entrepreneurship like? And they have t tons of questions and I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always, you know how it goes, but I try to relate. I try not to talk too much about it. I try to find common ground with, with whoever I'm talking to. So there's a few people that I do connect with, and that is that entrepreneurship bond. That the people who are involved in entrepreneurship or respect entrepreneurship, them and I kind of connect, and we connect beyond the normal day-to-day -day talking, which is kind of nice. Let's go all the way back. I mean, when you were in university, did you identify as someone who was one day going to be a business owner? 
No, definitely not. I was doing just the same thing everybody else was doing and trying to figure out where I fit into the world. I mean, I look back at how my mind and my emotions and everything, how mature I was as a 21-year-old. And and it's kind of crazy to think that we all have to make such big decisions about the trajectory of our life because I had no idea. I had no idea. I was just trying to figure out how I could get the best job that I could get. And I was going to explore entrepreneurship, but it definitely wasn't set. I was exploring options, looking for opportunities, but but no, entrepreneurship wasn't something where I said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur 100% no matter what. Do you remember uh, the first dollar you made with the business in college? Yeah. So I had listed my apartment on Craigslist for the summer because I they do 12-month leases in college. I went to Cornell in Ithaca, New York. They do 12-month leases and I was only there for nine months. I was going to go home and mow grass all summer. So I needed to lease it in the summertime, put it on Craigslist, but so did everybody else who had apartments, right? So eventually, about three weeks in to this listing, somebody called me on the phone and said, hey, Nick, I don't want to lease your apartment, but my son um, is in a dorm about a half mile away from you, and he has about 10 boxes of stuff, and we want you to pick it up and put it in your apartment over the summertime. And I, and I was like, what? What is this? And I almost just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I need to lease it. But I was like, I'm probably not going to lease it. I might as well just do it. Well, I made the deal on the phone of like $150. She, t- she told me about what he had. I drove up to his dorm and threw it all in my 1999 Cadillac DeVille that I had bought from my grandmother. Biggest car in all of College Town. Was, even at that time, I was 10 years old. You're a real gangster. <laughs> <laughs> Filled it up with boxes. It ended up being about double what she said he had. It was about an hour and a half of up these spiral staircases, really sweating, getting it in my room. I made the 150 bucks and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? Because I can't lease my apartment to anybody now because this kid's stuff has taken up half of it. So I was like, I might as well just figure out how much stuff I can store and do the same thing for as many of my friends as possible and see if I can build a little bit of side income out of this. It was, there was no, I'm going to make this a big business. There was no website. It was, it was literally running around my college campus. I had friends in the, in some of the fraternities and sororities. I would, I would show up at their meetings and I would give my little pitch about storage and I'm going to save you so much money over the company that is in town right now. And uh, before I knew it, my entire dorm was full. I filled up the room next to me. My other buddy was leaving. He he was too lazy to want to lease it out. People kept calling. So that's when I ran to college town. How much money are we talking about here? Each customer was probably 150 to $250. So I got to a thousand bucks pretty quick, got to where I was going to cover my summer lease pretty quick. So, yeah. So what did you do next? Well, I ran out of space. I was, I was moving the next year into who is, who is my partner now, my best friend, best man at my wedding. And he was also the co-captain on the track team with me. His name is Dan. He had a big house. And he, his house had a big basement where we'd have the track parties in. And I was like, okay, that basement is empty. That's the first thing I could think about is that, that basement is totally empty. It's relatively dry. So this is before you've gone home to, to mow grass. You're still... It's finals week, yeah. I'm running around trying to take finals. I had a track meet coming up, the Ivy League championships. I was going to go race that weekend. So I was just grinding after class, after track practice, running around, picking up stuff. What did Dan think about you wanting to commandeer his basement? He got really fired up. Dan was an entrepreneur himself. And my lawn mowing business is his candy selling business. 
in junior high. And and you t- you talk about candy. You think okay, maybe Dan gets a little bag of candy. No, he had six employees. They all had ledgers. He was selling candy like crazy. Make and, and he'd come home with three four hundred bucks at the end of the week. Eventually, almost got kicked out of school. Had to stop that business. <laughs> so I walk into his room and he's like, Nick, let's get after. It. Like he had the second biggest car. On college campus, he had a 1997 Buick LeSabre. <laughs> so we were match made in heaven. He's like, we can fill up my room because I'm going to Washington, D.C. for an internship. We can fill up the entire basement. So we did that. We ran around, and, and in two nights, we filled up his room, and we filled up the entire basement with about, I'd say, 25 people's things. Wow. And then, yeah, we rented out another room from one of our friends who was not going to be around. And So you guys, are you're back home for the summer mowing grass. How much are you thinking about the storage idea? We were fired up. We were fired up about it. We Danny had learned how to put together WordPress web. Neither of us are, have a tech background. What year was this? This was 2011. But why did you guys think this is an opportunity? I mean, so you have some friends. You made a couple hundred bucks. Dan's basement is unusable. No more parties. What makes you think like this is an opportunity? What What did you think was different about what you guys were doing relative to everybody else? And that's the thing. It wasn't a whole lot different. I mean, there was a company in Ithaca. They did it really well. They were the contracted provider of Cornell, and they probably got a 1,000 customers at $300 a pop. So we did some back-of-the-envelope math, realizing that this company was doing about three hundred to maybe more, maybe even four or $500,000 a year in sales. So we looked at that, and we're like, okay, let's study this business a little bit. Got all over their website, called them up, pretended to be customers, followed their trucks around, and then we realized that they were doing a lot of things that were just not efficient. Well, what did you learn by following their trucks around? We just learned that we can do what they're doing a lot better, a lot better. They had scales. They had clunky scales that they were running into the dorms, and they were weighing everything and charging by the weight. It took them like 45 minutes to draw up an invoice. Everybody had a clipboard, whereas we had iPhones with Google Sheets, and we could we could just communicate a lot better. So we like we looked at this business that did pretty well. And yeah, most people would have looked at this opportunity and said, I'm not interested in, in lugging uh, boxes up and down steps during finals week, so I'm not going to... I'm not going to do this, but Danny, Danny and I got pretty excited. Yeah, I mean, you went to Cornell, Nick. You, you had a bright future ahead of you. What were you thinking? That's exactly what my dad said when I got home and told him that I'm not going to get a job. I'm going to start a student pickup and delivery storage company. How did you respond to that? I don't know. You know, looking back, you're asking these questions that looking from the outside, yes, that, that's pretty crazy to try to do that. I don't, I don't know... If it was Danny just getting me so fired up or me, I'm, I'm pretty excitable as well. And well, what did you feel? What did that emotion tell you about these boxes and the iPhone sheets and running around with the LeSabre and stuff? What, what did you feel? It was fun. We had $5,000 cash sitting on the bed at the end of the week. You know, that's not much. Most people would have probably said, yeah, I'm going to go get my job. Our friends were getting jobs for, you know, my dad would say, Nick, you, you were just telling me last week about how your friend Chris got a job in New York City for $80,000 a year. And he's on an investment banking path. You were just telling me that. Like, did you really go to Cornell? Did we really send you to an Ivy League school so that you could start a pickup and delivery storage company? And then when I showed him pictures of the $1,500 cargo van that we bought on Craigslist, he's like, you're crazy. You've lost it. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens when you get back to school for your senior year? Yeah, Danny and I, we, we got serious. We realized that, okay... We could very easily waste two or three years of our life doing this. We, and the opportunity cost of that is huge. We have these Ivy League degrees. We're well-networked right now. We can go get some jobs. So we have to get out of our comfort zone. We have to get out there and get after it. So he had a cousin that went to University of Illinois. He had a friend, a really good high school friend that went to Iowa. I had a really good friend that went to Indiana. 
So we said, all right, the, the wise thing to do, the responsible thing to do would be to just stay at Cornell, get as many customers as we possibly can, test this model. But instead, we're like, we have to get out of our comfort zone. We have no choice. There's two of us to feed, especially there's two Ivy League grads that need to make a living off this business, need to make it worth it. So we bought three more cargo vans, about $3,000 each, drove them to these cities, convinced our friends and cousins to open up branches of our business in these towns. And mind you, we didn't go there. We did not even set foot in Illinois or Iowa or Indiana, but we were going to launch a branch of our company there. We marketed like crazy. And then when the customers would come pouring in, we would just figure it out, figure out how to service those customers and figure out how to organize the warehouses and deal with the incredible logistical nightmare that is not only storing the stuff in these warehouses, but delivering all these items back to the customers when they want them and having all of their stuff at the right spot on the truck where you can get it and you can give it back to these customers. So we learned a heck of a lot about how to keep track of everything, how to manage these people, because we had no choice. We couldn't just get on a plane during finals week and fly to Illinois. We had to make it happen remotely. And how did you incentivize your friends? How did you, Tom Sawyer, these poor souls into helping you with the venture? What was the deal? Why wouldn't they just do it themselves? Yeah, I don't know how we, how we pulled that off. We tried profit sharing. We, we tried you know, motivating them based on how many customers they got, a flat fee per customers. But it almost always didn't work. Like the way that we ended up having to do it almost every time was pay them $15, $18, $20 an hour, give them some status so that they could hire some of their friends and have a leadership role. And then we could be references for them. Like literally we were references for them that same year as they were trying to go get jobs. We had to sell it. We had to literally compel them to want to do this. And in those remote markets, was it harder to pick up customers given ostensibly there's a lot of companies there doing similar things as well? Sidewalk chalk was the key to my business. We could have easily done Facebook advertising, invested a bunch of money, done digital marketing, but we knew where our customers were. We knew where they were living. We knew where they walked. We knew where they went to class. We knew where they ate. We knew where they went out at night. And in the show notes, I'll send you a picture of what we wrote on the ground. It would be student storage, lowest prices in the country, storagesquad.com. And we would just paint those little ads all over campus. And boy, oh boy, they worked, man. They worked. When did you guys know it was something? We realized that we had to set some goals. And if we didn't hit the goals, we had to leave the business, no matter how emotionally attached we were. So the first year it was, we need to get 250 customers. And we figured, okay, if we're going to do $200 per customer, that's you know a little over 40 grand or so in revenue that can give us the money we need to build the business and, and grow from there. And we ended up getting 253 customers. So we barely hit our goal and we're like, okay, Dan, I'm not getting a job. Are you getting a job? And, he, and he's like, no, I'm not really getting a job. And we, we laugh about it now. It's, you know how when you have a, a girlfriend that you don't really trust and you're checking, checking her Facebook and her, and her text messages, Danny and I were checking each other's computers for resumes and emails <laughs> from companies because we're like, we promised, we promised each other we're not going to get jobs. Here's the bottom line. If you rank higher in Google search engine results, your company is going to make more money. Why not get experts involved who've got proven strategies? Check out smashdigital.com. That's right. Longtime listeners of the show will be familiar with leading SEO specialist Travis Jameson's suite of companies, 
previously called Supremacy SEO and Sassicorn. Well, now they've rebranded as SmashDigital.com. Same incredible SEO insights and results. Yes, Ian and myself have used these services. And what SmashDigital.com offers is simple, fully managed SEO services, link building, and SEO audits. In fact, they're giving away free audits to TMBA listeners. Check out SmashDigital.com slash TMBA. You'll get a free audit from a real human being. These mini audits are done by the management team over at Smash Digital, and they're personalized for your company. No automated software, just great advice from the SEO professionals at SmashDigital.com. This is an SEO firm that isn't obsessed with regurgitating Google's best practices. These guys practice what they preach. So get a fresh view on the potential that your business has to reach new sustainable sources of customers from organic SEO traffic by reaching out to the team over at smashdigital.com. And why not take them up on that free SEO audit? Smashdigital.com slash TMBA. Check it out. So you graduated with $40,000 in revenue and 253 customers, essentially. What was the plan? The plan was to just continue to get after it. I mean, we don't, the, the thing about this business is that we only get paid once a year. So we would do all this work. We'd work in, in the off season. We'd work during the busy season like crazy. We were working crazy hours during the busy season. And then we'd have to survive on that money and reinvest that money to help us grow the business for the next 12 months. We'd go to another school, we'd buy, we'd say, okay, this $40,000, we only spent half of it on warehouses and, and space. So we're going to buy three more $3,000 cargo vans and we're going to borrow 50 grand from whoever will give us 50 grand right before the busy season, before we get paid next year to kind of grow the business. And so then after that, we went to Syracuse, Penn State, we launched at two more schools the next year. And this entire time, Danny and I are living on pennies. Like we just totally buckled down on life. Because we knew that if we could save our money, we could turn it in, turn that $1 into $3 the next year if we just bought an extra cargo van or, or did some more marketing at these schools. So in 2013, Danny's uncle had passed away. He had an estate, like a little house there that was still in, in kind of a state settlement. And they were going to figure out what they were going to do with the house. So we lived in that house for a year um, while we had a $10 a day budget on food and we did some painting for the family. And that's when we really buckled down, created the systems, created the processes, and then in about February, we bought a box truck, our first real truck on the south side of Chicago for, I think it was $2,400. We loaded it with some supplies, some boxes, a lot of sidewalk chalk, and then I drove it to Boston. And that's where my wife was doing an internship to be a dietitian. I stayed in her apartment with her and her roommates. Danny went to Philadelphia to launch the branch there, or Penn State, one of the two. We just went to these areas to physically grow the business. We knew we had to get to Boston. It was so intimidating. It was just such an expensive city. Where were we going to find storage space? But there's 120,000 students there, Harvard's there, MIT's there, Northeastern, Boston University. Like literally our target customer is somebody who's at a private school, has disposable income, maybe is from California, from Florida, or from Asia or Europe, and they really need what we offer. So we knew we had to get there. And, and 2013 is when we went to Boston got after it for three, for about three or four weeks straight of just sidewalk chalk flyers every single day, myself in Boston. And then the customers just came. It was our business almost collapsed because we just got too many customers way too fast. But from there, like from that year on, we had the cash flows to, to kind of grow and build a sustainable business that was going to be worth it for us. 
Your girlfriend or your wife was living in Boston? My wife now and my girlfriend at that time, Michelle. That's right. I met her, I met her senior year of college. What did uh, Michelle's friends make of you, like sort of rocking up to Boston in a box truck? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a Rite Aid in Somerville, Massachusetts, that has one parking spot that's really wide. And it had a meter. And the meter only ran from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So that's where the box truck parked. And it was about a half a mile from the house that she stayed in. And they all made fun of me because I'd have to sit in that lot for sometimes an hour waiting for that one spot to open up. Similar stories to that over and over again. She, I had to sell her on trusting me just as much as I had to sell these managers on opening branches of our business or people to come to work for us or my dad to let me borrow some money to buy another box truck. So communication with her early on and telling her, we're not just going to mess around with this for five years and make nothing of ourselves. We have these goals that if we don't hit, we're going to move on. And she said, okay, I'm in. I'm in. I trust you. Did you expect that deluge of customers in Boston? No. We had planned for about 300 or 400 customers. So we had a warehouse ready for 300 or 400 customers. We had a workforce ready for 300, 400 customers. And then 800 customers came. So the warehouse was too small. Danny had to fly his brother into town to help. We had to fly another one of our best friends into town to help. Like when we think about the the scrappy glory days of, of building this business, it's that week and a half in Boston when... We didn't have enough employees, so I was driving the. I, I was running a, tr- a crew by myself, driving a truck by myself. When usually we have three guys on a truck, Danny was running one by himself. We'd come come back to the warehouse with seven or eight full trucks at five p.m., and we'd have to send our employees home because we needed them to show up the next day. We needed them to show up, and Danny and I would sit at the warehouse and unload between doing cust- answering customer service calls, answering emails, and unloading these trucks. We'd finish about three a.m. and we would get baby wipes and like clean up so that we didn't smell horrible in elevators the next day. And we would answer customer service from 3 to 5 a.m., sleep from 5 to 7, and wake up and do it again for two weeks. It was brutal. It was brutal. How did it affect the business afterwards? Like when you guys kind of woke up from that challenge, what was the new horizon ahead of you? It was amazing. That was the turning point. And that's when Danny and I realized that, okay, we cannot keep working in the business. We cannot keep driving these trucks. We cannot keep doing the day-to-day. Well, first of all, we had the finances then at that point to really grow, to make a hire, to figure some things out because our other branches grew the same. Like It was the most stressful month of our lives. But that's when we kind of turned the corner and said, okay, every second that we spend driving a truck, we are losing money. Even to this day, people ask me like, Nick, what do you do in December, in January, in February when there's absolutely nothing going on? And that year is when Danny and I realized that that's when we make our money. That's when we add the most value to our business. I mean, you and Ian talk all the time about the difference between value and money. And we realized that we could, we could make more money in the short term by getting out and laboring and doing the work ourselves. But to add value to the business and to increase profitability next year and the year after that, we had no choice but to spend our time hiring, training, managing, marketing, getting customers So that's when we really shifted and turned into entrepreneurs, in my opinion, that year. And that's when we kind of had a sustainable business that we were like, oh my gosh, okay, instead of bringing in, you know, our our 250 customers, we just did 3000 customers across all of our branches. Like, let's go, let's do it. What for you were, was like that core skill of entrepreneurship that you needed to learn? Like, what, what was that exactly? Because I think it's pretty easy to relate to 
figuring out like a connection of how you're getting money. It's pretty easy to relate to like hustling and finding new acquisition channels. But that moment of like becoming an entrepreneur, that feels like more vague to me. It's really hard to put a finger on it, but I think it was just the sales mentality. It, it was the, we're not just selling our customers to choose us. We're selling our employees to trust us. We're selling our managers to take a risk on us and come work for us. We're selling our family members to support us. Every second of our day was a sales situation. We were trying to be compelling. We were trying to get people to trust us. Our website landing page was only so much of it. Like that was oriented towards getting a customer to trust us. But to service all those customers, we had a big employee problem. Like the customers weren't necessarily the problem. This whole time, the business in 2011 to 2018, we hit it right on the head of the perfect time to enter a service business. The amount of international students were doubling, tripling. More kids were traveling in from out of state. So we didn't have a customer problem. We had an employee problem in our business. We needed better systems. We needed better employees. And we were just selling those people to trust us and come on board and work with us. So that's kind of when we shifted. How do you do that if you're not there? A lot of times we had no choice to actually be a technician in the business. We couldn't. It wasn't physically possible to fly from Illinois on Friday to Penn State on Saturday morning. So we had to set up systems. We had to. Like if I'm running a local business in my town, it's really easy for me to just go out on the truck and get on the truck, right? And just and work with the customers. We had no choice but to get off the truck. So when we were limited by those constraints, we said, okay, how can we use technology right now? How can we use software? How can we use you know, Salesforce, Google Sheets, whatever it is to set up a system that we can run a service business totally hands-off from a different city? And then we realized that if we're not on our computer, it's a problem. Even today, like it is, as soon as we step off of our computer and go into a warehouse to move boxes or go on a truck to save the day, things get way, way worse. Like when you're on a computer, you can prevent the fires from happening, right? You can tell the employees about their scheduling. You can plan in advance. But as soon as you are away from your computer for three hours, it's over. Like that's what we learned. You mentioned uh, you had like some really innovative ways of acquiring customers, but you've also said that you guys were innovative on the operational side. Share with me some of the things that you do differently than your competitors. Our competitors would, the day before, they would make a list of the, these are the 20 customers that you need to pick up today as your crew. I'm going to print it out on a clipboard. I'm going to hand it to the driver and the driver is going to go around town and pick up all those customers. Well, we would wait until the last second. We would kind of estimate based on what we knew from the previous year of where our customers were going to be, but then we would schedule them live on well, now we have an app that actually we can build out our schedules on, but one driver can go to one dorm like Northeastern International Village is literally half of the students in that whole school living right in that one dorm. We would show up at 8 a.m. An hour before that, every kid would get a text message, okay, bring your stuff down right now. So we would show up to 35 students downstairs with all their items labeled, ready to go. And our whole crew, like we would load that whole truck in 45 minutes, whereas our competitors would spend all day driving around. They'd visit the same dorm maybe three or four times. So once we got the volume, once we got, okay, we're going to have two or 300 customers at this school, we could be super efficient with our scheduling and we could update it live on our end. So a customer could call us and say, Hey, Nick, I didn't plan. I need my stuff picked up today. And we'd say, Oh yeah, we can get you on a schedule. Actually, our truck will be at international village in 20 minutes. Just go downstairs with your, with your boxes and, and I'll put you on his schedule right now. So he knows you're coming. Can you give us some stats just for some context? Like how many customers do you have? How many employees, all that? 
Yeah. So we do just under 3 million a year in sales. After Danny and I pay ourselves, it's about a 20% margin. 10,000 customers or so it takes to do that spread out throughout the year. And we're at, I always forget how many schools because we go to a couple more every year. It's, it's around 28 major schools, about 35 that we advertise to in 12 states. And we're the contracted provider at Penn State, Emory, Brandeis, George Washington. So we started getting some school contracts for them to back us. So that kind of helped us grow as well. But, but yeah, at this point, we have six full-time employees, including myself and Dan, a COO that is phenomenal, two full-time customer service admin reps, and then we have part-time student managers in every single city. So we've, we've built our business basically on hiring students because, yeah, the students are a little bit unreliable. Yeah, they go out and party, but they're fairly competent. They're fairly fast learners, and we can overcome those challenges with hiring students and kind of make it worth it over hiring random people off the street who then you got to worry about the moving industry as a whole has kind of a reputation for a little bit rough around the edges. So it's actually students that are rocking around in the trucks, picking up the uh, stuff. Yeah, it's great because they know where to go. The other students feel comfortable with them coming in the dorms. They interact well with the parents. That's rocking. So there's like, there's basically like six people that are the brain center of the business. And then you have an enormous group, I'm assuming of, of part-time contractors. We're actually, they're all employees. So we had the option some of our competitors contract out all the work and kind of hire a moving company to handle all the logistics. We made a decision early on to take it all in-house, hire and train, onboard all of our people. But so basically let's start in January when we are preparing for the April, May rush. We have one employee focusing on all of the recruiting efforts. We have another employee that focuses on all the onboarding, interviewing, and training processes. Like we, we have an online training process where a kid can sit down and in three hours learn everything about the job. And then they get quizzed at the end going through our software app. So before we even see the whites of an employee's eyes, they are very, very, very familiar with our business. They've been onboarded by somebody on our executive team. We just centralized so much and simplified the job of the student manager overseeing it where he has five core tasks that he needs to do, but he doesn't need to worry about training. He doesn't need to worry about how the warehouse is organized. He doesn't need to worry about the logistics that we used to have. So that's kind of when we turned another corner is when we start centralizing a lot of our core tasks and taking it off of the individual managers all around. What's your view on uh, business partnerships? Me and Danny got really lucky. I ran into his room. We got really excited. We did a handshake deal and it just turned out that our goals and our, and the way that kind of we guided our life was, was the same, but we've had several partners through the years that just didn't work out. And man, yeah, partnerships is, is an extremely deep topic. I know you and Ian dive into it a lot, but yeah, Danny and I basically have a marriage partnership where anything, anything I do, anything he does, we share it all and, and, the values there and it makes sense. How do you guys divide responsibilities in that situation? Well, it's interesting you say that because in, in 2015, we realized, okay, the business, we don't have exponential more schools that we can go to. We don't have a ton of additional growth opportunities. We got to figure out how we're going to get away from this extremely stressful service business as our sole means of providing. And that's when I left the business altogether in about 2016 and started doing self-storage. And investing basically the profit that we made from Storage Squad, student storage, we built a storage facility that is basically a real estate asset. So we're trying to diversify. We're trying to get income coming in throughout the year. 
And now Danny and I have totally separate things. He's the CEO of the student storage business. He's continued to grow that. He's continued to manage it. And I am focusing on our real estate holdings and our self-storage operations. So, yeah, it's interesting that the the divide and conquer has been our recent strategy, whereas before it was always working on the same things. And what was it about self-storage spaces that made you think they were an opportunity? We started just studying it. Like we spent two years studying self-storage before we ever made the leap of, okay, we're going to study how much people can charge for this size unit in this town. And we made a big grid of everywhere in the east of the Mississippi River and in every one of our towns where, okay, rents are high here. And then how much does it cost to build or buy property? And then how much supply is out on the market? So it's basically a big old math problem, which is what I like. So we would run these cash flow projections where we could just work on estimating, okay, if we get this many customers a month, we can bring in this much revenue and it's stable. And with our competitive advantage of applying a little bit of technology, applying a little bit of remote management to that business, we're like, wow, these other competitors maybe are only getting an 8% return on their initial investment. But if we cut out a lot of these costs and if we operate it more efficiently, we can turn that 8% to an eight and a half, nine percent return. And we can have our own competitive advantage in the space. Self-storage is definitely something that it's a little bit more stable, a lot less stressful. You can manage the same amount of revenue with one hundredth of the stress, moving parts, risk, things like that. You have a really interesting business philosophy that resonated with me. You basically... I'll let you sum it up, but I'll get you started and I want to hear it from you. But is this idea of like, you're kind of a little bit pissed off about what Shark Tank's doing to America. What do you mean by that? My take on entrepreneurship is you don't have to have a new world changing idea. You can look around you in in your day-to-day life and you can do exactly what other people are doing and you can carve out a piece of the pie. If you can go about business without this flashy Silicon Valley scalable thing like people would have looked at storage squad our pickup and delivery storage and said nick that's never scalable why are you wasting your ivy degree go to a tech startup go start an sas company or SaaS company why are you moving boxes and lugging them up and down steps well the competition was weak no one was going after that right no one was trying these things i'm on this mission now to get our bright entrepreneurs especially our tech guys who are really really good at systems and systemizing to take a look at these service businesses, these local businesses that are operated like it's 1985. They make really, really, really good money with a fax machine, with an accountant in-house. They don't use freelancers. They don't use technology to organize what they're doing. They're technicians out on the job instead of sitting on their computer working. So yeah, that's that's my mission is, is to just have people take another look at these local businesses that can accomplish your goals. And business is about momentum, right? What I was doing in those dorms eight, nine years ago is nowhere near what I'm doing now and what I'll be doing 10 years from now. People are so afraid to start small, to start something non-flashy and just get a little bit of momentum, learn about business. And then you're way more likely to succeed when you do try something bigger and try to make more money and do something a lot larger. Today's episode show notes, links, everything mentioned in today's conversation is going to be posted over at tropicalmba.com slash storage squad. And me and Nick, man, we have a lot of business ideas in common. We've been emailing each other back and forth. I love, he's got a critique of Naval. He's got 
a bunch of businesses that he loves, that he hates. We're going to get back on the pod and do some more episodes in the future. Let us know what you think about this one over at tropicalmba.com slash storage squad. Looking forward to some follow-up episodes. The boss man ain't here, but that don't mean that we can't do rock news and reviews. I don't want to take any of the spotlight away from the boss man because I know this is everybody looks forward to this segment. What song is the boss man going to select? So let's just play some elevator music because it's funny. Tommy Griffith, the founder of ClickMinded, SEO courses online, writes on Twitter of our recent conversation with Ryan from Ryrob.com. It's like King Kong versus Godzilla. Well done of that conversation. Lots of really positive emails and uh, Twitter and, and, and all kinds of stuff coming through on the Ryrob interview. So if you haven't listened yet to that episode, how to make $50,000 a month from one blog post, go back and uh, click on that in the TMBA stream. Some news, uh, we just got off of a team retreat here in Barcelona, and I'm so energized. We sat in a conference room for two straight days with the team. We had whiteboards. We had lunch together. You know, if you're thinking about pulling your team together, I just highly recommend it. We really, I do think, you know, you sit in an office with people for three or four weeks and that energy dissipates and eventually the headphones go on and there are diminishing returns to offices. But this year, we'll be getting together with our team three times and yeah, there's some expense to it, but uh, it's something that we want to make consistent so our remote team can plan their years around it so that they can travel effectively to these team retreats. And uh, if you're thinking about it, I would definitely encourage you to do so. I'm packing up my bags, flying back to the United States, getting ready to go on yet another road trip. For those of you who don't know yet, I am a minivan enthusiast. I like to put all my stuff in the back of the van, my, my golf clubs, my bicycles, and explore the great country of America, Ian and I have been talking about cars. We've been talking about entrepreneur mobiles privately. And a lot of people have been asking us, you know, what are the best cars to buy? Not only what are the cheapest, most appreciated cars to buy, which is basically the concept of the entrepreneur mobile. That's that don't let your car, your car payment get in the way of getting your business off the ground. So if you have any thoughts about entrepreneur mobiles or cars or questions about that, I think Ian and I will be cooking up an episode about cars specifically. And finally, one thing I want to point out is we do have a few DCBKK sponsorships available. If you own a trusted and established product that you'd like to get it in front of over 300 founders of small businesses, reach out to Ian at tropicalmba.com. We still have a few sponsorships available for DCBKK, which is, of course, our flagship event in Bangkok every year. That is it for this week's pod. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back, as always, next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.